Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Microservices are the cool new way to build large software systems. The hype is everywhere from the tech press to the hipster dude in the next cubicle. If you are building applications, you probably felt at least some pressure to build them as microservices. However, If you've been in tech for very long, you've also seen a lot of fads come and go. You're probably wondering if you're really choosing microservices for the right reasons. In this episode, we're going to talk about some things that are not good indications that you should use microservices, at least not by themselves. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Uh, Man, I've been fighting writing and editing and more writing and more editing. I actually did get some time that wasn't completely consumed by writing and editing. My wife and I went and saw Bohemian Rhapsody. That that was awesome, by the way. And it's a really good movie. Yeah, it's like the first thing I've seen, uh, except for like one episode of Blue Planet that I watched with my daughter since like Mm -hmm. the beginning of the year. Yeah, because I mean, I'm, I'm just... You know, I'm writing so much and I'm getting like that thing where I'll, I'll write a word out and I look at it and I'm like, is that a word? Is it spelled right? Did I add that to the dictionary and it's not right? And like, you know, you like <laughs> look it up in Google. Yeah. yeah it's, oh, I, do, I do that all the time. Yeah. It's, it's just a lot. Like I, I got there and there mixed up the other day in a tweet. Mm-hmm. Like that never happens to me, but man, it did the other day. And I was like, man, I'm just fried. There's nothing in the tank. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm doing. The, the, uh, the end is in sight on the book. You know, there's like, four chapters left you know not that bad so uh how about you i uh speaking of movies i went and saw captain marvel how was that if you're just looking for a fun comic book movie it was great with all the hype about it i expected there to be more more depth than just your standard you know superhero kind of movie i thought there was going to be a lot more to it and i just i didn't see that i didn't get that from the movie, it was, you know, underdog gains power, you know, comes back and saves people. There's your typical standard superhero movie. And I just, I thought there would be more, more to it, more depth, something like that. Um, it was interesting to see Samuel as, uh, as Nick Fury with both eyes. Huh. Yeah. You find out in the movie, I'm not going to ruin it for anyone, but I mean, it's kind of common knowledge. You find out in the movie how he lost his eye. Given that I know how he lost it in the comic books, I'm not the biggest fan of how he lost it in the movie. I think some of the stuff was kind of fun the way they did it, but yeah, that that one I was like, ah, no, no. <laughs> but you know, that's that's me though, and I'm you know I'm who I am. Other people might have enjoyed it, so that's fine. Uh, honestly, I understand your stress, man. I've been stressed out too, bro. Work and school—they just have me constantly busy. I mean, I, I'm trying to get out and make new friends since I've moved down here, but I'm always working on something. So it's scattered when I get to get out. Like I have a couple of scheduled things that I do with people and I've made some, some new friends that I try to hang out with, but it's just, it's hard for me to get out. And 
you know me, that's my thing is I like going out and hanging out with people. That's that's what I do for fun. In really awesome news, I finally got my bike fixed. I, I really like the place that I had work on it. They came out and picked it up the day after I called, which if you guys remember, I was back and forth with the place in Nashville because they wouldn't come pick it up. And I'm like, you can't fix it if you don't come get it. And I'm not going to pay you if you don't fix it. So, you know, anyways, this place, the the owner is really nice. It's a small shop. It's actually the oldest motorcycle shop in Murfreesboro. What is frustrating, though, is it ended up costing a bit more than I expected. And that's mainly because they don't make the tires for my bike in the U.S. anymore. So I've got my bike back and that's awesome. I do need to get some new boots and I need to clean her up a bit. Uh, and then I'm going to be out on the road a lot. There are some great roads for riding down here. Oh, yeah. I've also been playing around a lot with my old camera um, that my dad gave me. You remember the one that I had in college that was like ancient when we were in college? Uh-huh. But it takes great photos. It's a really high quality camera that was like made before either one of us was born. But it, it still takes great pictures. It's fun. Um, and I'm, I'm relearning a lot of stuff about photography that I just forgotten. Speaking of cameras, though, I've got something interesting for IOTs. Microprocessors and chips are becoming easy and cheap to make. However, cameras, even simple ones, for IoT devices are a lot more expensive. They have several parts, some moving, and they require things like lenses to focus them. However, a company named Rambus has developed a lensless smart sensor. So when crystal clarity is not the goal and you just need optical sensation, then these sensors are the cost-effective approach. They're great for collecting sensor data without violating privacy. Um, they're also beneficial for motion tracking and measuring object depth. They are a low cost and low power, so they're able to be used on minimal equipment. And the way they work is they use diffraction gratings along with a specially designed algorithm to view and track objects. Really neat. And I have a link to the company and the product in the show notes. So check that out. Who's talking to us this week? We got a tweet from Vi Giebel. I hope I got that right. Or Gable at Complete Dev Pod. What are your thoughts on tech conferences for developers? MS Build, NG Conference, and MS Business App Summit. Are these worthwhile for developers? You know, just real quick, it's hilarious that this was the comment that we chose because I just got a Facebook message from another one of our listeners asking almost the same thing about a different conference. Huh. But um, uh, Will and I both attend conferences every year, mostly because we, we're speakers and we speak at them or we sponsor them through the podcast. Uh, but the ones we sponsor, we tend to stick close to home so it's not too far of a drive. What's your thoughts on the bigger conferences, I guess? Um, let's see. I've been to, um, what is that one in Sandusky? Code mash. You mean yeah. the one I spoke at last? Yeah. Uh, Sorry. This my past brain year? just didn't, isn't there. Yeah, no problem. So I've been yeah, to that code one's mash. Awesome. I've been to code mash. I really, really liked it. I haven't gone to as many of the larger conferences. Um, I don't overly like large crowds of people. 
So it's, it's hard to get me to go to a conference unless I'm speaking or sponsoring it, um, <laughs> which is kind of strange when you put it that way. Um, I have heard a lot of good things about MS Build and NG Conference um, you know, in particular. I, I do think those are probably worth attending. I just I haven't gone to them, so I can't really speak for that. I, I know we know um, a couple of people, uh, other podcasters that we know that go to um, MS Build. I don't know about anyone that goes to NGConf, though I wouldn't be surprised if someone we knows goes. Knows goes? Yeah. That's like when you say water bottle. I I, I just like expect to hear you tangle yourself one of these times and I'm waiting. I've been saying water bottle way too much to to mess that one up. But uh, yeah. yeah. Speaking of water bottles, send us a DM with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and is Google Plus still around? We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. Also, check us out each week on Facebook Live where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions. Or you could join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. The hype train regarding microservices has picked up steam in the last few years. You'll find a fair bit of agreement online that they are a better way to design a system than your super duper uncool monolith. However, if you look further into the thing, microservices are not that easy. They bring with them substantial design overhead, some performance and security issues that you have to consider and they take a lot more effort to build, scale, and deploy than the less cool application architectures if you haven't done the work ahead of time. I think that's a that's a big key is the work ahead of time. Because uh, something that I have noticed in working with both is that um, the, the microservices, it's kind of like .NET Core. Um, it requires a lot of upfront work. Yeah. But it makes those things easier once you get that upfront work done. Yeah. And the thing with the hype train is, is that people assume that you've already done that yeah, um, or that your organization will support you doing that. Mm-hmm. And that. That is one thing that people don't take into account is, and this is a debate that I've had with my lead developer about some things. It's like, you know, I, I'm trying to bring in some ideas and our architect wants us to do things a certain way. And she's like, yeah, but you have this and this. And it's like, right. We have, you know, Instead of putting in the effort later on, we put in the effort now. And it, it is a bit of a back and forth, and you have to do it consciously is really what we're getting at. Um, you know, you're going to be tempted to build out a microservice. And we're not saying not to. Frankly, the thought process and design behind them are often beautiful things that kind of please our mental image of how programming is supposed to be and properly built, they can really give you a lot of flexibility, emphasis on properly built. The point is we like them too. Like we're, we'll sit and talk about how much we like them all day long. However, there are some reasons that we've seen people choose microservices that really aren't right or aren't good enough to justify them when they don't need to be there. Um, Yeah. We're going to talk about these and why they aren't good justifications on their own, at least, even though they may be good justifications, you know, with other reasons for building microservices. So let's go ahead and get into it. So the first and most obvious one is because they are a cool thing to do for your resume. And they absolutely are. 
And resume driven can, development. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you can get away with resume driven development. Um, but at the architecture level, that is really, really dangerous. You know, that's one thing that I've learned in my job is you cannot make permanent decisions for your resume. That's because everybody else pays for it from then on out. Like it's one thing to do something cool in a program. It's another thing to go, okay, this is an organizational level pattern that the rest of the developers are going to be dealing with. That's it's pretty selfish. Architectural mistakes are not easy to correct. Uh, you know, it's not easy to go from a monolith when you shouldn't have one to microservices. It isn't going to be any easier to go the other way either. You also uh, need a lot more buy-in from your team, which can lead to conflict. Like I was talking, um, in some of the stuff we do, microservices is the right way to go for for a variety of reasons. Yeah, know? but you may have team members that they communicate through the database. And as horrible as that is, that's still a pattern that's around. And if your organization does that, you're going to have a hard time going, okay, let's break up and have a whole bunch of different databases and communicate through APIs. Yeah. And that's, that is something that people do have to get. That is a, a big change that people have to get used to. Writing microservices looks cool. Uh, however, a good interviewer will question whether they were needed or not. And that's what I was saying. It's one of the things I like about yeah, the stuff that we're doing with microservices is there's a lot of reason. And I can I can sit and tell you all day long why we're doing it and why we need that versus something else in the in the cases where we're using. Now it's worse to have experience from forcing a microservice where it doesn't fit than not having that experience at all. Like a, a good hiring manager or hiring team with serious developers on it is going to look at that and go, all right. You've got the technical skill, but you you don't understand how to use it. Yeah, and, and what you're they really want, it. yeah, what they really want is someone that knows how to use it, even if you don't have the technical skill, because the technical skill is the easy part. Yeah, it's the understanding it that's the hard part. Yeah, I mean it's kind of the Jurassic Park principle. You know, you you were so busy thinking about whether you could do something that you didn't think about whether you should. Right, and then later there's running and screaming. Always running and screaming. Yeah. If you don't really need a microservice, something simpler will probably get you to results more quickly. And so, like, if you plan to stay with your current employer for a while, you're better off if they can get those results early um, instead of a year from now, once you've gotten all the infrastructure up. Yes and no. It depends on how much they're trying to do. Yeah. If if it's a bigger thing, but like if it's, okay, we need to be able to send emails okay, let's stand up a microservice to send emails. And oh, by the way, everybody else communicates to the database like it's 1998. You're getting your steps in the wrong order. Right, right. Yeah. Simple solutions that work and get to market quickly are likely candidates for moving to a microservice later once you've decided what the software actually does instead of what you designed it to do. Now, this is a, a big point in like where where I work. It's we are coming in and updating and replacing older systems. Right. So we already know what it does and how it's being used. And how it scales and that kind yeah. of stuff. So we already know a lot of this information that you may not know going in. So we're, we're I guess we're at the place where things were built monolithically, a bunch of individual monoliths, and now we're making it more microservices. Yeah. You've, you've got the experience beforehand. And I yeah. mean, that's... and. You know, at my work, we're starting to break stuff up too. And Mm -hmm. it's for that reason. It's like, hey, it's been deployed at clients. We know how people hit the system. And Mm -hmm. we can start making these kind of decisions slowly 
and and moving yeah. stuff out because the other thing is your load shifts too when you move a chunk out and you yeah. change stuff that was synchronous to be asynchronous because it's got to you know call a web service and wait on a webhook to come back mm-hmm. like it does change your load profile and you really do have to kind of go slow on stuff because you'll get burned so quick if you don't now the next one is because it will be easier to scale in air quotes um, later s- almost never shows up yeah you know the future is unevenly distributed <laughs> uh, if you don't know what you have to scale and how you probably don't have to scale yet uh, scaling is a reaction to pain small tweaks to your design might have huge impacts in terms of the way it's used and the way it needs to be partitioned and scaled. You might also find that you can offload some of the work to a third-party service in a way that drastically impacts how you would break up a microservice. Right. Like, for instance, the email service thing I was talking about. Let's say that your service has to send emails and it does it through SMTP. Cool. Mm -hmm. No problem. That's fine. But you, you come up and you say, well, I can use Mandrill or something, right? I can use uh, Mailgun or, you know, one of those kind of deals. And you now, instead of having to send an SMTP request, wait for the thing to come back and go, okay, yeah, it went. Now you batch stuff up and you put it in the service and the service calls you back. Your load profile just changed mm-hmm. significantly. And so now it may not be worth doing that. Instead, it might be worthwhile just going, okay, when I need to send one of these, I'll make that request and go on with life because I'm not waiting on arbitrarily slow SMTP connections out there. And I've done both, by the way. That's why I'm specifically picking on this example. You won't know any of this stuff until your code's been out there a while and it's been iterated on most of the time. You just just don't know this stuff up front. And premature optimization is a primary source of unnecessary complexity in software. If you designed a microservice architecture and never need it, you'll still pay the cost of that architecture, but you won't have the benefits. Yeah. And and by the way, this works for everything else too, right? Like if you go, okay, I've got to have a three-tiered architecture. Okay, well, what is this thing doing? Well, it's reading records from a database and writing them to a file. Um, you don't necessarily need a three-tiered architecture for that. But if you build one, the next guy that has to change stuff has to change that architecture. So don't build stuff that you don't need. I mean, this is kind of the, uh, you know, the Yagni principle. You ain't going to need it. You know, the idea, I forget what the law is, and I should have looked it up when I was doing the outline, but I forgot it was law. Um, Allow the complex things to evolve from the simple things instead of going, I'm going to make something complex from the get-go. Oh, that was in our programming laws episode too. I remember that. Yeah. But I can't remember the name of it either. So no, I'm bad. Now, the next thing in this this whole mess is that the money to pay for scaling things is often not there until those things need to be scaled. So it's oh, like, okay, yeah. it costs money to make a microservice architecture. Well, if you're not under the kind of load and the kind of situation that needs it, the money isn't coming in to pay for you to build it either. And presumably there's a business reason for any of the code that you're writing. If that code comes under enough load to need to be broken up and scaled out, then that load is evidence that there's money there for it, or you need to drop that feature because it's not making you any money. The need doesn't justify a microservice, and you're often better off finding some other place where it is justified and fixing that. And then you can show the benefits rather than building something eloquent that is unused. The next reason, or bad reason, I guess, is because you don't want to commit to a single software stack. Uh, You're probably more efficient in one stack than another. Um, 
And changes don't come lightly. Yeah. I mean, you can do most anything in most anything. You know, yeah. like I, that's the thing that gets me with, you know, all, like all the web frameworks. It's like, oh, you can't do that in Ruby. Mm-hmm. Bull. You know, yeah, there's some stuff that, yeah, I, I probably don't want to write the kernel of an operating system in C sharp. That would be a pain. Yeah. It, it, well, you wouldn't be doing C sharp anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wouldn't want to write it in C either, by the way. I mean, it's going to be C or lower. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, you I, I'm not going to uh, say what? So you could try it in JavaScript. That's true. Yeah, you could totally try it in JavaScript. Just put evals all over the place. It's great I think, fun. I think that's I think that's what you need that. in an operating system. We should we should get with the uh, with with David Neal and and build an operating system in in JavaScript. Sounds sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> wow. I just I can't even. <laughs> I just I don't have a response to that. <laughs> Although you know what's you know what's interesting is is there's probably somebody trying to figure out how to do that and do it well. I, I would not be surprised around. by that. And they're probably gonna they're probably gonna send us an angry tweet later and be like, dudes, you know, here it is. Here's my project, and we're gonna have to link it and be like, okay, we're sorry. If if you are writing a operating system in JavaScript, get in touch with us. We'll bring you on the show. Yeah. We'll do an episode just about what you're doing because that. Yeah, now somebody's going to start one. You see what you did? I did that on purpose, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing like, multi stack environments can work well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I work in one. You do too, technically, if you count all the JavaScript you guys have. <laughs> um, and you've got, yeah. you know, you got some older tech in there too, right? Like, everybody's got that. Um, but the organization has to be equipped. To deal with that too. It's just like microservices. It's another cost. If you're not getting a benefit from the cost, you're just paying the cost. It's like paying a mortgage on a house you don't live in. It's also more complex to manage a mixed environment with multiple software stacks than it is to manage a single one. Now, when you have multiple software stacks in a work environment, people tend to separate into tribes. You know, we're a tribal society, you know, easily, especially when it comes time to assign blame for things. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard something like if those .NET developers hadn't done that. Oh, yeah. Or if those Delphi developers hadn't done that. Or if those Fox Pro developers haven't done that, which I agree with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> dead gummit. <laughs> Sitting back there, listening to Ace of Base, contemplating the end of their platform when they yeah, were I new. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I can't. I know I listen to Ace of Base and Code too, but it's fine. Um, uh, okay, good. We're we're on the same page there because you know. But but here's the thing, right? If you switch languages and you stand up a microservice, you risk both the language and the idea of microservices being blamed for whatever you did wrong on some platform you're not used to. And so five years from now, when you do need microservices, now you have management resistance and you're not going to get the thing that can help you. This doesn't mean you can't do it. Just that this lack of commitment shouldn't drive you to taking on microservices and making things even more complex because you want to do a couple of things in different ways. I mean, you know, I really like Python. I've I've said that a couple of times. Uh, I'm a .NET developer, and we do some microservices. I would love to do some of our data manipulation stuff with Python, you know, especially as we get into doing some bigger data stuff. But realistically, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, you got to have a team. I mean, you got to think about like what happens if you leave. 
Yeah. And they've got this service written in something that nobody uses in that organization. Mm-hmm. That's that's it exactly. Um, I, you know, and I'll, I'll, just as an aside, I really hate it when people make huge committed decisions based on their lack of commitment. <laughs> like, what? Well, you know, I don't like this person that well, and I don't really want to be their friend, but let's buy a house together. Are you joking? Like, yeah, that, that's yeah. what I hear when somebody says, I can't commit to a stack, but I want to, you know, and I want to do microservices as a result of that. That's, that is not good thinking. You know, the thing is, is you don't want to start searching for solutions to problems that you don't have. You search for a solution when you have a problem. If you are wasting time on the wrong things and your competitors aren't, you're they're not going to have a competitor very long. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be behind them. They're going to win. That's just that. And by the way, that's true. Even if it's a government agency, right? Like that's, you know, I know this is something you realize, Mm -hmm. but a lot of government developers that I can remember talking to back in the day didn't realize this. It's like, you know, the alternative to the government agency is not having a government agency. You've got to stay ahead of that. Yep. That's, that's very true. Now, the next one is because you want to be able to quickly add new functionality. I, I kind of get this. I mean, working in a somewhat microservice environment, uh, it makes sense. You know, the promise of microservices is that it, you can quickly add functionality if done properly. And there is a time investment to be able to do it properly. Yeah. And you're going to need stuff like, you know, automated deployment to a testing environment. You're going to have to have practices in place so that your changes don't break the world for the rest of your team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got to have all that kind of stuff in place. You're going to have to have the capability of running multiple versions side by side too, because by the way, not everybody can update as quick as you can. Yeah. And when you, when you have central services, the more things that you have relying on those services, the, the more backward compatibility you're going to have to have. This is something that I have learned as we, we changed the data model on one of the services that everything touches. Yep. And I know what's coming. So I had to build backward compatibility for the things that were already in production because we couldn't just take everything down and change the data that was being sent in. But by the way, did you do that? Yeah. And you didn't just like up and do that, right? Like it was a thing that, that that came down from on high and they still couldn't make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was like executive director and senior architect thing that came down to, to make those changes. Um, And, you know, it's the way I built it was so that the older services that were still using the old data model could pass things in and out. And when they came in, they got adjusted to the new one. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen people also do that where they'll have, um, they'll have the new service sitting behind a version of the old service that essentially morphs the incoming data type and then shifts it over. Yeah. You know, where it's just like a little proxy and that way mm-hmm. they can, they can eventually kill that thing off and they're not, they're not polluting the other thing with the backward compatible code. I mean, there's all kinds of patterns for this stuff, but it's a pain. Yeah. You have to have that there. And especially the further into your infrastructure, something is like, if it's on the periphery, you might be able to get away with something like this, but if it's in the middle, dude. And you know, the thing is like most of the people that want to quickly add new functionality, like this is something I've noticed when they say they quickly want to be able to do it. What they mean by quick is, is there isn't a plan. And you, that's another thing you can't do with breaking stuff out into microservices. Like you're, you're going to have to do a little bit more planning up front than a lot of the 
extreme agile fanboys are happy with. Yeah, you. it's a matter of when you're starting out. And I, this is a whole nother discussion, to be honest. But you know, I, I wonder how well agile is. And I've always struggled with this. How is it with starting something new? Like it, It's it awful. Works, it works great when you've got a product and you're doing features and things like that. Um, or you've already started a process, but that very beginning, and that, that's something that I've struggled with. I'm like, I don't, the waterfall method makes sense for starting a pro, starting something new and then yeah. converting it over to agile as you've got a minimum viable product there. And then you start doing iterative on it, but getting like the figuring out what, what is the minimum functionality you need? I mean, yeah. This like is, I'm going to, how am I going to build my authentication? Like partial authentication, you know how valuable that is? That's like partial authentication is about as valuable as having a house without a roof on it, right? Like you're not sleeping there, at least not in this weather. You could sleep in the basement, maybe. Yeah. But (laughs) I mean, it's just like there's certain stuff that almost has to be planned out just so that you can be agile on the rest of it. I I think the, the, the take it all or leave it all approach is not real good early in, in a project. Um, your competition may be spending time on their product while you build out infrastructure. That's another thing that will get you on this. A lot of managers really, really don't trust developers. I've, I've had plenty of conversations with them that are just like, oh man, you know, freaking developers and, you know, the stuff that they say and, and they're always after some new fad and we can't get stuff built in time. Like I hear that a lot. And developers, have created this problem because they focused on stuff that didn't look important while the competition was moving forward. Now the developers could have been right, mm-hmm. but if you don't sell it to management, you're still wrong. No, I remember um, you and I did some consulting a while back where they were looking at moving to a, a newer version of the framework they were on. Mm-hmm. And we looked at what they had built. And uh, since it was more, it was a, the JavaScript framework they're wanting to change. You had me look into it because I was more familiar with it. And I came back and I'm like, all right, I don't suggest you change it because you've got something solid here with what you've built and it's going to work. And making the changes requires all this other stuff. You you remember that conversation. Yeah. I remember that very well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But if you can't show the value of what you're doing in terms of actual money or the organizational roadmap, presuming you have one, you're going to encounter resistance to your ideas because that's rational. You may not know how things need to be broken up before you need them. Users don't always use your system the way you would think. Oh my goodness, this becomes true at scale. Getting people to test things in user acceptance testing. We're going through this right now. And there there are things that we were told, oh, that's, you know, not important that they're coming back with, oh, well, we didn't think about it from this perspective and now we need this or we need it to be able to to handle this kind of a load when we didn't build it for that because we didn't know that was a, a thing. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it, it's, it's frustrating, but also it's kind of eye-opening in that, you know, as a team, we didn't think to ask those questions either. So like we're we're learning a lot about the process and about how to pull that information out of people. But yeah, it's kind of like when you build bridges, you learn that the river floods sometimes. Yeah, and then you drown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically what what we're getting at is until you have some experience with what people want your software to do, 
you're not very likely to have the right answers as far as how microservices need to be designed to make that happen. Yeah. Now, speaking of how things are broken up, uh, the next point is, uh, you know, because your development teams are siloed and it fits your organizational model. Um, I've seen people do microservices based on this. And to be honest, you don't really want to be doing stuff that makes siloing in your organization worse, um, unless you've got a real good reason for it. Simply because you can't move developers around to different projects, you you're basically creating a situation where you have fewer options than you even had before when you had too few options. The other thing is, is that, you know, really badly siloed teams tend to indicate one of two things, really. Uh, it either indicates that your organization is too small to need microservices or that it's already big enough that it's probably not within your purview to create them. You know, like that's one of those that's going to be a CIO goal at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, basically, I mean, you've kind of you've kind of encountered this at work, as have I, right? Like knowledge silos are not something that you want to encourage just because of, you know, there's there's an associated cost with those. And you're piling that on top of the additional cost of the microservice. You're using the cost of the microservice to buy more silo. Yeah, that that's something that I have noticed is um, that the the microservice causes a silo. So it's, oh, well so-and-so built that service, so it's their responsibility, and if anything comes up, it's their job to handle it. This is, this is something that we have been debating back and forth about how, how to do things, is should people be, all right, this is your responsibility if anything comes up, or should everyone be trained on it? And of course, I, you know which camp I fall into. Yeah, like I fall into the camp of everyone should be trained at least the minimal training on everything. So that way, if something happens and I can't work on the thing that I built, you can come in and you know enough about it to at, at least do some basic maintenance on it. You know, you know, I, if I design and build my own car, I, I would teach Will to change the oil and change the, the tires and stuff like that on it if he's going to be driving it. Yeah. But I mean, that, that said, like, you, you know, you can't, you can't train everybody on everything, yeah. but intentionally encouraging people not to know something and go, Hey, it's your job not to know this. That's not very good. Uh, unless your organization is really, really big. Like your Google. Yeah. Knowledge silos are not something you want. Uh, the thing is with those huge organizations, their knowledge silos are basically bigger than your field. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, they're basically their own organization. Yeah. I mean, well, and you know, the only time I've really seen knowledge siloing that's really good is when there's stuff that's really critical and the company doesn't want implementation details to get out. Mm -hmm. So like it's a, it's an industry secret type stuff that makes a little more sense. Or if you're working on, you know, weapon systems, encryption, stuff that you don't export, yeah, that makes sense then. But you still don't want to be the only person that knows it, though. No, because then somebody's going to tie you to a chair or beat you with a wrench until there's two people that know. <laughs> right. Like yeah. if it's that critical, it's uh, yeah. it's not good. Now, next. Speaking of getting beaten with a wrench. Yep. <laughs> is because you can't maintain your legacy monolith or distributed monolith. Yeah, Maintaining a bunch of loose microservices. It's not that much easier. Actually, it's not easier at all than maintaining a monolith. Yeah, unless the monolith is really badly coded, in which case, you know, people go, okay, well, this is badly coded, so I'm going to replace it with this other thing, right? And that sounds 
reasonable until you go, well, did you get rid of the problem that created this other pile of crap? Or are we going to spread the piles of crap around? Oh, yeah. You you either have one ginormous triceratops poop or a bunch of little cow patties. Um, there might be an argument for moving from a distributed monolith to microservices, provided that the organizational problems that led to the distributed monolith have been corrected. Mm-hmm. If they haven't, you're... You're just spreading the problem around and you're going to have fires everywhere instead of in one big fire in one place. Now, a shift to microservices is likely to make things worse before it makes them better. I've seen this firsthand at at places. If things are really bad, it's it's gonna make life difficult because you still have you have to address what's making it bad. Yeah, and if you just made it worse. You know, like this make this is the kind of decision that can put your job on the line because they don't see that it it's getting better. They see that it's worse right now. The next reason is because you're designing a minimum viable product. Right. So you're spinning up a new product. You're going to put it out on the market and you're going to start selling it and seeing what kind of stuff you get from the customers. And you're going to adjust and all this. That's a real bad time to be spinning up a microservice because you don't know what the client wants. You may need to pivot 15 times before you get it right. Well, the idea here is you build that monolith. Then as you see things that could be services, well, it's the same way you, you do code. Like, yeah, I don't always think, hey, I'm going to reuse this chunk of code. Sometimes I, I, I build it to do a function and then six months later I come back to it and I'm like, hey, I need to reuse that functionality. Let me pull that out and, and put it into a little um, a separate function that both of them can call. And it's kind of like that where you build it to you build the sort of monolith to do the thing. And then as you see, hey, I can use this in other places, you pull things out. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is you don't know early in the game what's going to go on with your app, like, mm-hmm. you know, where you're going to have to scale, where you might need to put a, uh, you know, an endpoint, you know, at the periphery and then put a microservice behind it. Yeah. Um, because you got a big client and they're like, you're not directly hitting the database from the DMZ. Are you joking? Right. Like once you have that, now you have criteria around it. And when you're doing a minimum viable product, you're trying to find criteria. That's, you know, that's the point of that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of setup. And, there's an opportunity cost for creating a microservice and creating the infrastructure for one. Now that's coming down. A lot of the cloud services are getting better, but there's still overhead, especially if you've never used one before. You should be working on adding features for your users at this point, like as a business. This isn't even a software decision. This is a business decision of, hey, we've got we've got a limited amount of runway. We have to start getting money coming in before we run out of money to go out. And, you know, an early microservice implementation at this point uh, will result in a costly rework later. Uh, you know, I, I put in the outline May, it's like 99% certain because you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you might decide to run on a different platform uh, with a different framework. Uh, you might decide to drastically change what the app does. You know, the more code and infrastructure you have, the harder that move is going to be. And it's going to be that way at a time when you don't have the money to cover mm-hmm. it. The next reason is because you think they'll be easier to manage in production. Ooh, yeah, baby. Uh, again, a microservice architecture might be easier to manage in production, provided you met all the prerequisites. I mean, we've stated this over and over again. If you build it right from the get-go, yes. The problem is this is not um, 
This is not a fail easy thing. This is not something that you can mess up and still recover easily from. You know, these prerequisites usually mean that you have dedicated people to handle things like deployment. It also means that your other software development practices are good. Yeah, they have to be clean enough. I mean, it's it's like saying it's easier to cross the ocean in an airplane than it is on a raft. That's completely true. However, if you don't have a runway or metallurgy or all these other things that are needed to put that plane in the air and make it actually get across there, it isn't, in fact, easier. You're still going to drown on a raft, by the way, but you know, <laughs> you might still be able to swim back to shore. <laughs> you want to make sure your team is well-trained to be able to handle the system in production. You need enough trained people for coverage. This is what we were talking about before about you know the knowledge silos. Your deployment team can't be just one dude because that dude will get sick, will go on vacation, things like that. The number of people required will go up as you get more microservices. Yeah, something else I've seen is where you've got a team of like four or five people and they're in charge of some microservices. And you go, okay, cool. Like, well, what are they? And they start listing them off and they just keep going. And there's like, oh, we're in charge of 28 microservices. You're not in charge of any of those. I hate to tell you, if you got that many, you don't have control over it anymore. It's like, it's like I'm in charge of these 36 chihuahuas. <laughs> no, you're not. You're just getting barked at, man. <laughs> all day. Yep, yep, yep. That's all you're getting. In addition to staffing, you may be required to migrate software to infrastructure that will support your microservice ambitions. This is hard when you can't prove the need. Yeah, so this means you're probably looking at a cloud provider. Um, if you have the kind of situation where microservices can really help you, aka I need to scale elastically, I need you know pre-built deployment pipelines, I need to be able to you know keep it running, you know while I switch to the newer version and then take the old one down, you know like that kind of stuff. You know you're looking at at more of a cloud infrastructure, and if you've got on-site services, you know running on a server in a closet somewhere that there's an organizational difference between that and where you're trying to go. And developers are really, really bad about underestimating how big of a jump that is. Um, and I'll tell you the other thing that that'll jump out at you on that too. Um, your old school developers that you have on your team, if they go from an acid database to a base one, in other words, it's, you know, eventually consistent versus, you know, it's transactional. And, you know, right now um, they don't even know how to code for that. In a lot of cases like that, that's not something that's in their headspace. So you've got this whole mess of stuff you've got to do before you can even start going the direction you're going. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how I got a thing for acid burn. I always wanted to be crash override. Ah, hackers reference. <laughs> so the next reason is because it's default in your organization. If your organization has the infrastructure and practices in place to deal well with numerous microservices, then it would be sensible to use them. However, if they don't, it's kind of a dumb default. Yeah, and a lot of times, even if you have the infrastructure, that doesn't mean that you've appropriately abstracted the microservice that you're designing or that you actually know really where it's going to go longer term. A lot of organizations think they have microservices, but actually they have a distributed monolith. Yeah, and a lot of them, frankly, get by with that. Um, as you know, as bad as it is, that's a thing. So what would be a distributed monolith that people would think of as a microservice? Like 
Give you me have a service. Okay. Again, the service that sends email, right? Mm-hmm. It's out there. It's running as a Windows service. You got an API that you can call to get status on it. It connects to the same database as everything else. And that's where its records get put in half the time. It's like a partially distributed thing. It's like, yeah, you're on your way. You know, in other words, you're kind of having a uh, service mitosis, if you will, but those cells haven't split. Well, this may be a, see, what this is making me think of is that's a good step towards a microservice or it's a, it's a good test of, Hey, is this the right thing for us at this time? Yeah, it can be. Um, You know, it can also be a thing that people do, you know, in avoidance of a microservice as well. Well, there's that. Yeah. Um, The, The whole thing is intentionality, really. Yeah. Now, and realistically, your organization may only need microservices for certain functions. You basically, yeah. pick the right tool for the job. I worked at an organization that um, you know was in the process of splitting stuff out. So they had a monolith for a while, and we started splitting off, you know, basically into a distributed monolith, and you know, getting message queuing in there and starting to break out the infrastructure. And you know, we had a roadmap for how we were going to do it. And so it was, you know, distributed monolith going to a, a microservice style architecture. It's just, you know, we had we had a lot of constraints on us at the time. That's okay, um, and it's it's totally fine too if you break off a few of those and you've got a few microservices and everything else stays as a monolith. That may be okay for your organization. Like, don't necessarily take it as a default that it has to be this way just because you know that's the organization's default. You probably need to question that. Yeah, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You could have a blended system. Um, Yeah, and you will have. There are legitimate technological and business reasons for spinning out microservices. And you need to let those pull your design towards microservice rather than you pushing things that way. A lot of organizational defaults are implicit and don't reflect an actual decision arrived at by thinking. Yeah, so like you got a previous developer that said, hey, I'm going to make my stuff microservices. And they did it within one little slice of the system. But oh, by the way, they generated a um, you know, starter project in Visual Studio, right? For making microservices in my organization. And it gets installed on everybody's machines. And then they go and they use that. Well, are they using it because microservices are a good idea there? Or are they using it because I have a template? And you just got to watch for those kind of things. Um, if you follow somebody else's defaults blindly, you're going to remind management of them. And sometimes those people got fired years ago. For a reason. Yeah. And oh. you don't want to do that. Like you, there's, there's context around all this stuff. Now, the last reason that we're going to discuss is because you want to farm work out to an outsource team to save resources on your end. Right. Which works. That's totally fine. You might think that you can avoid different teams stepping on each other, right? By breaking stuff out into microservices and you've got well-defined interfaces between them and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Maybe you can, but you have to have some kind of design in place before you start, right? You don't just go, you know, yeah, tomorrow we're going to start doing this, right? Like you lay that stuff out probably six months to a year before you get anybody outsourced and you start breaking stuff apart. And you get, you know, first of all, your half of the team has to be used to dealing with it and have a way of dealing with it. You don't want to deal with the outsource team and go, oh, I don't know, because you're hiring these people. So, you know, you don't want them going their own way on that, especially when you're not looking. Oh, and- yeah. I'm working on a, a service that we have that I've been asked to come in and do a few things on. 
I had a meeting a little while ago with an outsource team that uh, a contractor that we have hired to build some things that's talking to this service. And you know, I had to to jump on this call and tell them, all right, here's the changes I'm making. I, I, I'm trying to make changes so it doesn't affect anyone, but there's some things that we're, we're kind of locking down. And it's like, all right, you guys are not going to be able to do that anymore. You're not going to have access to that because you know, we can't allow that. So, right. Yeah. And you, you want to plan that ahead because otherwise, you know, it's expensive. Your, your outsource mm-hmm. team is now churning and they're probably hourly. Yeah. Now they may be in a location that's cheaper than where you are, but you're still burning money. And I don't know if you've had the life experience of fragile agile with a distributed team before <laughs> where it's like, Hey, let's not plan anything. And Oh, by the way, our teams are, I don't know, 12 time zones apart. And then you throw microservices in there. It's a riot, oh. possibly literally. <laughs> you know? Particularly loose agile with API interfaces in the mix can, can be unpleasant for everyone. Um, yeah, it's interesting because this uh, the service I'm working on it's going to require some changes to the UI as well for it, and so I've been working with our UI lead, and he was asking me about some of the the new endpoints I'd created. And he's like, "Do you have just like a list of those the interfaces that I can use?" I was like, "Oh yeah, here, let me send you this link that has all of the the interfaces, what they take, and you know all, all the information that you need." Yay, XML comments. Help me yeah. build that. Or, or Swagger or something like that. Like, I mean, you oh, got to standardize on stuff before you start doing any of this, this kind of stuff. And a lot of people go, well, I'm going to bring in the outsource team. And because I'm bringing in the outsource team, now I can go to microservices. It's like, no, 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 no. You got to, that split should have already started happening because your organizational structure is going to be reflected in the code. So yeah. you've got to have that structure. Also, architectural choices are not a good substitute for actually managing people who work together. You can certainly reduce conflicts between people with design choices you make, but you're probably making a mistake if your solution for existing personnel problems is to code around them. Yeah, I, I have worked at a couple places that did that. There's, um, there's a company here in town at one point that had two different IT departments because wow. two of the owners didn't get along with each other. And you know, that was fun. Yeah. It's like, Oh no, no, no. That's the other, that's the other IT department. And you're like, what, <laughs> what do you, what do you mean? It's that's the other IT to what? <laughs> yeah. And you know, by the way, this was back at a time period where like that was before uh, service oriented architectures really even took off. Like it was a long time ago. And the amount of effort that you try to spend fixing people problems with code is a lot more effort than you would spend fixing people problems with people and then fixing the code. And so you, you just kind of want to avoid doing that. The, the thing about it is, and this is something that, that I've learned too by doing it, is when you have these disparate teams that have to integrate their microservices, it's going to require more interaction, not less, because they have to be talking the same language. They have to understand each other. You're not going to get around personality conflicts by separating them out because they still have to interact with each other. Well, and the, and the more you pull them apart, the worse those conflicts get, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're now encouraging tribalism with your architecture. Yeah. So you're making it permanent. Version and, conflicts between microservices and their clients are especially fun to work with when you have geographically dispersed teams. 
anytime you migrate versions on a microservice, you're probably going to have both versions running in production for a little while uh, until your clients catch up. Yeah, and if communications between your teams are already limited, microservice version migrations and the differences of assumptions between those things, you know, that's going to drive conflict, right? Like you have to have all your ducks in a row before you start doing this. Well, this is what I was talking about with um, updates that I made. We, we were changing the data model in the database, but we had things in production that we weren't going to pull down and fix immediately. So I had to build it so that those things still worked. And I've, I have seen where people did not do that. They're like, oh, we're just breaking it. You got to go in and change it. And it's like, I've got five apps that I have to change that on. Yeah. And by the way, they all have to go through testing and it's three o'clock on a Friday by the time you realize what broke you. Mm-hmm. Because that's the other thing too, is you'll, you'll make calls and, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people aren't prepared for like the logging costs of a microservice. It's like, Hey, this thing's running on 15 different machines. How do I get my logs together where I can actually see what's going on now? People don't think about that, but. A lot of times people roll stuff out and they don't test it and it breaks and they don't know why it's broken. And it takes a long time. If you rolled out on a Wednesday, it's potentially possible that you don't find out that, yeah, this is what broke it. It's this other new microservice that's out there and it's late on a Friday and you get to stay there all weekend and fix it. You know, you got to think as a developer about the cost that you're imposing on everybody else by making a decision, even if it's the right decision. There's there's a lot to think about. Guys, there are loads of good reasons to choose microservice architecture for your next project. However, there's a lot of reasons that are not good enough reasons to do so. Like any decision or set of decisions, choosing to go with microservices will impose cost on you, your organization, and your team. If you can't justify the cost, you really shouldn't take them on. The reasons we listed here are not by themselves sufficiently good indicators that you need a microservice architecture. However, they aren't a bad starting point for considering the idea. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, you know, this whole thing, I know we're going to get an email from somebody, you know, like, 10 episodes out, that's going to be like, well, you know, in the microservice thing, you said this. What did you mean by that? Here's the deal. You got to learn when you have ideas like this, it doesn't make them bad. It doesn't make them good. You have to sell them. You have to have a business case for that idea. That's something other than I want this on my resume. And you have to be able to roll it out without breaking all the things. Uh, And the reason these ideas were insufficient is because all of them introduce breaks without actually fixing things. Now, if you look at it and you go, hey, I'm going to, you know, this will help, you know, when we get an outsourced team and we've got these other things here and it'll help our scaling and, you know, we have infrastructure in place, we've got the right people, we can start moving that way. That's one thing. That's not what we were talking about here. What we were talking about here was, hey, I just want to do this and we're just going to up and do it. And it's perfectly good justification. That is how you end up unemployed and possibly with all your friends unemployed with you. So I just want to throw that out there before I get the angry email. I really like microservices. I think they help a lot. However, you have to have good justification. That's all I've got. Stand by for Titanfall. 
you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.